The more time I spend on Earth, the more I realize that things that most people assume are not plausible usually are. There's a lot that people assume could never happen or would never happen that, that does happen. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Barrett Anderson. Barrett is the Chief Operating Officer of Strategic News Service and Director of Programs for the Future in Review Conferences. She co-founded and was CEO of Scout.ai, a media company exploring the future of technology. Her work on information warfare has been widely featured in major media such as New Yorker and TechCrunch, and she is a frequent international keynote speaker. You can find more on her work at stratnews.com, futureinreview.com, and on Twitter at Barrett, B-E-R-I-T underscore Anderson. In this episode, she shares insights on mapping influences, noticing breaks and patterns, ignoring headlines, information warfare, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Barrett's great insights. Welcome to the show, Barrett. Thank you, Ross. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So I think you've, you've lived your life immersed in all sorts of information and picking out wonderful things from it. So, so part of your role is, of course, seeing patterns. So is there, how, how do you do that? What's the, what's the underpinning of your practices or mindset that enables you to uh, you know, do that so well? I think it's a combination for me of two things. One, reading as much as possible from sources that I trust and sources that focus on data as opposed to what people say. Um, I look a lot at people's actions as opposed to their words. Um, and that comes into play a lot in the technology space and the business space where people often, you know, the majority of the time say one thing and do another. Um, and then the other is, is, you know, just talking to people. So I try to talk to people who have really different opinions than I do, who know more than I do about a subject. Um, I try to bring in experts in particular spaces where I have intellectual weaknesses and use their knowledge and, and, and what they're willing to share, um, to kind of help build out my mental model of a challenge or an industry or a space. So I'd like, like to dig into each of those points. So you're saying, seeing what people do rather than they say, and I presume this is the, the public figures or entrepreneurs. So can you give examples of this idea of seeing people, what, what they do rather than what, uh, what they say? Yes, there's so many. They're, they're all over. So in, I live in the U.S., I'm a journalist, so so I feel comfortable saying this, but 
the entire reporting ecosystem in the United States is based around sensationalism. And they like to, you know, by by design, because of the business model of, of journalism in the United States is primarily driven by ads. And so they will publish, you know, media companies, not all media companies, but a vast majority of mainstream media companies will publish and reward people who can get the most clicks for their articles, right? And, you know, headlines are key to that. And so what you, the result of that is that you'll often see headlines about, you know, Elon Musk tweeting something or Donald Trump tweeting something or, um, you know, the CEO of Google saying something. And the key to those, in my experience, is to ignore them completely I'm not really interested in what Donald Trump is tweeting, except in the context of seeing what his strategy is in in communicating with the public, right? Like, I don't take anything yes. that, you know, most people say publicly at face value, but I do look at, okay, where's the money coming from to fund that person's initiatives? Where Where is the, you know, who are the investors in their company? What are their biggest challenges from a personal and business perspective? How did they grow up, right? Like I, I will often look into people's childhoods and their evolution as an intellectual as a key to understanding their kind of intellectual framework and underpinning. And, and then I apply that to what are they actually doing with their businesses or with their life, right? What have they created? What decisions have they made? Where are they spending the money of their company? And that, to me, tells me a whole lot more than uh, any article about uh, Elon Musk's recent, most recent tweet or Trump's most recent tweet or, you know, because so much of what's happening in those spaces, especially political spaces, but business and tech is the same, is really happening behind the scenes, you know, and so from that perspective, investigative journalism is very interesting to me because people spend a lot of time and energy looking into what's happening. Media outlets that focus on context and understanding why specific information comes out is very interesting to me. But the blah, blah, blah says blank headlines. I just t t totally turned them out. <laughs> yes, this, uh, it's uh, journalism's become a lot easier when all you need to do is quote somebody's tweet. <laughs> Screenshot, one paragraph screenshot, you're done. So you also mentioned building the mental models to understand what's going on. And that's obviously, the, in a way, the nub of the, the challenge and the opportunity today. So are there any tools you use? Are there any mental frameworks that you use to build this, As for example, being able to pull back these money trails to build a concept of how the world is structured and uh, what might happen next? Yeah, so I look, fr from a tool perspective, I'm old-fashioned. I like Post-it notes. I, I, you, I have them on the walls of my office. And I like to map out people who are influencers in a specific space, understand their motivations, understand, you know, use those to move different ideas around, identify connections between companies and individuals and other groups. It's pretty basic, but I, you know, I also do a lot of bookmarking of tabs. I'll follow a specific, when I start to notice a pattern happening in a specific industry or a specific space, I'll create a bookmark folder for that specific pattern. And then as I come across media 
that relates to that, sometimes it's just one headline that's just like a part, a tiny part of the story, I can start to collate all of those different information sources to tell a bigger picture and a bigger story. That's often kind of how I develop. So I'm my day job, I'm, I'm the chief operating officer of Strategic News Service and the um, Future in Review, uh, which is a conference and action tank focused on using technology to solve global problems. Now, Strategic News Service, I, I author uh, about once a month. It's a newsletter focused on the future of technology and the global economy. It's extremely accurate. Mark Anderson, who's also my father, it's a family company, started in 1995. He has had a 95.2% accuracy rating in his publicly graded predictions since that time. And so a lot of our work relies on tracking things, noticing things that aren't that don't fit into what you would expect, and then keeping those kind of in the back of your mind. But really, it's it's pretty simple, like Google Docs, <laughs> bookmarks, post-its. That's my, that's my jam. Right. So there really are these tools to just visual, assist visualization, but it really is the, the, your cognition and you know, the tru- the, they truly are mental models as opposed to a, an external construct. Yep. For, for the most part, I'm, I'm open to change. If you, I mean, you've talked to a lot of people, so maybe, maybe you can share some of, some of their, uh, their other experiences or opinions. <laughs> well, well, I just the, the one thing which I think is really interesting is the rise of connected note-taking tools such as Obsidian and Rome Research, and there's a lot of other things which uh, are similar things. And I think of, you know, information as not separate, but the relationships between them, as mm-hmm. you've been expressing. And I think that there are more and more useful tools to facilitate your mental connections by doing that in software and you know potentially mapping that in visually in maps 2d maps or 3d maps and so there are some interesting tools and i think the extraordinary you know the rome cult and other words that describe the phenomenon that is the the rapid rise of these tools i think express that the that the they are entering the zeitgeist and i think there's a lot more opportunities for you know, to, I think it's you know everyone needs to hack their right. own each their own thing useful usage yeah. of these tools, but yeah, but essentially you know it is ultimately around what's in our heads. But I think these kinds of tools can be very, very helpful in being able to build those relationships. And you know, a lot of people are using in the world of uh, when everyone's online using Miro and Mural and other whiteboards. And, you know, some people are similarly using them just as a bunch of post-it notes and seeing relationships and finding that very useful as well. So, you know, there, there are more tools. It's just uh, and people, I think, finding good ways to use them to stimulate their, their thinking. Yeah, and it totally depends on how, you know, people, everyone's brain works differently, right? For me, I actually exactly. really like physical objects. I, I buy physical copies of books and I write in them and I take notes as I read and I underline things that I think are important and then I pull all of those things out. So, but that's, you know, that model isn't going to work for, for, for you or for someone else necessarily. It's more just about, I think the most important thing, regardless of how you collect information is learning how to notice what's important, right? Like learning how to notice the systems that are underlying a specific story or a specific information source and the motivations that are underlying a specific story or a specific information source and and keeping tabs on those and identifying the context behind the information is the most important thing I think you can learn to help get better at 
understanding the world and what's really happening out there. So, so that's something you've learned through perhaps growing up in your family, your education, teaching yourself. But what would you suggest for other people that want to learn that facility to you know, notice what matters or notice what's underlying? Is there, what is the process? What are the ways in which we can get better at that? Well, I, w- I would be remiss if I didn't say you should become a member of Strategic News Service because that's where we I publish you know my thinking and, and Mark publishes his thinking and my brother Evan also he's he's a world expert on um, China's national business model. All of that work that we do, which is focused on technology and the global economy, understanding the systems underlying the world and what's driving those things. There are, I think you know the most important thing to start is questioning what you see. So understanding why people are doing things, why, you know, anytime I see, for example, I notice how specific countries or governments think and frame things. And then when you see a break in that pattern, like if China, for example, is saying the same thing every day for 10 years, and then you see them do something that's out of character, that's a good place to start looking. Right. Like noticing breaks in existing patterns is a really good place to start kind of thinking about, oh, why is that? You know, like here, here's one example. So I was a few years ago, I was tracking uh, Russian misinformation and we started noticing, oh, OK, three times in the last, I don't remember, three months, giant U.S. military ships have lost their ability to not accidentally run into Chinese ships, right? And oh, by the way, that also happened off the coast of Russia to some random fishing vessels. And that first time I was like, well, that's interesting. What really happened there, right? Like the first time that happened, I was like, hmm, that doesn't happen. Like you don't accidentally, as the captain of a, a US naval vessel, you don't accidentally run into another giant ship. So that means either there was some kind of technological malfunction with their equipment, or it was a very deliberate effort by the other side to cause some kind of crash. And when I started paying attention to that, then I saw the example pop up in Russia of of this happening with an unrelated type of vessel. And then I found out that within the city of Moscow, Ubers were being redirected to the Kremlin by accident somehow. And that led me down this whole kind of rabbit hole of, okay, what's happening here? It's some kind of, uh, there, was a, there was a deliberate effort to use GPS spoofing to cause interference with navigation because global navigation systems were all set to, to GPS. So now since that happened, they've had to go back. GPS spoofing is when, you know, the, the coordinates of, are, are told that they're somewhere that they aren't. Right. Mm. Since that happened, the the U.S. military has gone back and and had to reteach all of their naval operators how to prioritize non GPS based navigation. But that's the kind of thing right. where one one ship crashing into another one, you're like, hmm, that's very unusual. Why? Why did that happen? And when you start to ask questions and notice things that are out of the ordinary, then you start to kind of you can kind of follow those threads and find patterns of that sort. So, I mean, just as a, as a very crude high-level summary, so you're observing patterns, noticing exceptions in patterns, asking why that might be, 
and being able to sensitize yourself more to other patent exceptions that relate to that first one to build, I suppose, this new pattern of possibilities. Is that yeah, that yeah. reasonable? Yep, that's, that's pretty much it. And then, you know, I, I try to read philosophy and poetry in between to help my brain kind of create mental connections and that are not related to the news. Yes. It's, it's interesting. I mean, there's, um, this, there was a recent article in New York Times about DYOR, do your own research. And it's an interesting point where, yes, you need to do your own research and perceive your own things, but there's also a point where that can be taken too far in you know, the apophenia and being able to see patterns that aren't necessarily there. Right. I mean, so it, I, think, so it's, it's a, I think that that hunger for the DYOR movement is why QAnon was so successful, right? It was, it yes. was, it encouraged people to find connections and, and do research and become a part of this global network of truth, essentially. That's how they framed it. Uh, at a time when they had no social connection, it was during the pandemic, so everyone was holed up at home and they needed that you know it's 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 like a serotonin bump when you find a new thing and so there's you do need to balance that realism and that conversation with others outside of your sphere to help process like does this mean something or is it just a coincidence you know one coincidence is is okay usually i find when there are like two or three coincidences that's when i start noticing a, a pattern You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So one of the things which you, you saw patterns early was uh, around disinformation and information warfare. I'd love to sort of hear where where that started and how that you know your engagement with information warfare has has progressed. Yeah. So I prior to my work at SNS and Future and Review, I was the co-founder of a company called Scout that combined near-term science fiction and investigative reporting. You know, in that space, we use scenario planning and science fiction as a tool to think through what could the future implications of these emerging technologies be, right? Like, what are patterns that we're observing now that when combined with, you know, this next iteration of genetic, you know, mutation or experimentation or this next iteration of widespread information could, like, when you start to think about how could this develop given what we know about the way that the world functions now? You can see problems before they happen, right? And this is, I'm sure, something that you, many of your, your guests have talked about. But I find it's a really useful tool to think through what do you, like, h- how would something work? Because the person who's creating that technology is going to go through that same process at some point in the future. And there's certain things that you can pick up based on that. So because we were doing that work already, we actually wrote a piece of of fiction that we published in the summer of 2015, I think I want to say, about the Facebook newsfeed and how in this piece of fiction, Facebook had used this newsfeed to influence the election. 
because we imagined that most the a, a majority of Facebook engineers would be uh, more democratic leading. In our mind, in this fiction, we we they they had um, developed a way. At that point, in within Facebook, you only needed the approval of one other engineer to push a change to the newsfeed. So it's like a double point of failure thing, right? And this is something that Mark Zuckerberg was famous for: is making it easy for engineers to develop and and push new updates. The problem is that it also makes it easy to make a change that. Uh, might have a n- negative impact on the on their users. So in this piece of fiction, we imagine that they, you know, two engineers had teamed up, like, and because it didn't, the change didn't negatively impact engagement, which was their only metric at that point for at w- for which a uh, you know a change to the newsfeed would have been reviewed. That they would use that to sway to get out the vote efforts, essentially to increase democratic voter turnout to impact the outcome of an election, which is something that they had done a study on internally to prove that if you put a, already, it's proved that if you put an I voted sticker at the top of the newsfeed at that time that they could influence voter turnout by a pretty big percentage point. I can't remember what it is now, but there was a significant impact on, on like the social kind of contagion of voting. Um, so we had already done that going into the election. In the US when, um, when Trump was elected, on on election night, I was struck by a couple of things. One, there was a huge difference in you know polls and what the actual outcome of the election was. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Why was that? And then number two, which I thought was even more unusual, is that there was a huge difference in the exit polls from the election and the actual outcome of the election. So none of that was actually capturing the way that people voted in that election. And I started looking in, I was like, why is that? What's going on here? What, what was taking place? And clearly polling has been outdated for a while at the time. I'm not sure that they were really relying on, you know, as people switched off of mobile phones or onto mobile phones, um, a lot of, a lot of political polling did, did not update, you know, to relevant new technologies that has changed now, um, in some ways, but not at all. And so, yeah, I just started doing more research to figure out, okay, what were the actual polling outcomes in specific key swing states, right? Why did certain states swing differently than what we thought? And the more that I looked into that, the more I, looking into that, I found this work that had been done by a really incredible, oh my gosh, now I'm forgetting his name. I apologize. He, He was critical in, he created a map of the internet uh, during this time, and he found that in addition to all of the normal major news sites that you normally see, publishing and and connections between those, normally what you see is a map where there are lots of nodes into major news sites. But there was also in his map this like circumference of fake news sites or like far right news sites that were all linking to each other at the same time. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. So there's something going on there. And then from there, you know, progressed and did more research, talked to more experts, learned about, you know, talked to Samuel Woolley at, uh, at Oxford, who was studying information warfare and, and bots on Twitter, learned about that and started putting all of these different pieces together to eventually publish the first article that explained how Trump, Cambridge Analytica, and Russia had used 
information warfare to game the outcome of the U.S. election and how Cambridge Analytica was working around the world with other governments to game the outcomes of other elections as well. So it started from a science fiction piece, really, is what is what. The, and then because that was in my head already, or that was in our heads already, we're able, you know, we're kind of thinking about that. It became this eerie piece of premonition in a weird way, reverse yeah. premonition. Yeah, and that's, I think that's part of that, that frame of exploring what is plausible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not hard to put together some pieces to see what's plausible, and uh, sometimes the plausible uncovers some truths. I have found the, the more time I spend on Earth, the more I realize that things that most people assume are not plausible usually are. You know, oftentimes I interact with people and they're like, well, that couldn't be. No one's really that evil or no one's really that, you know, <laughs> manipulative and no one's really that coordinated. And it turns out that they actually are. Like when you start to do, like the more you learn about the world and the way things work, the, the, there's a lot that people assume could never happen or would never happen that, that does happen. And, and so, yeah, and you are essentially a futurist, or that's part of your role. And part, I think part of that role as well is, you know, we have this cone of possibilities that people talk about in the future, sort of what is, you know, probable, possible, uh, you know, in the realms of uh, the realms of possibility, and part of it's opening your mind. Most a lot of people think in terms of what they think is most likely, and part of that mindset is then being able to think of pr- across a broader spectrum of what is plausible or possible, and uh, and be able to stretch, you know, almost literally stretch your mind to uh, to encompass that. Yeah, a, a big part of it, I think, is also seeking out. Like when I want to understand something better, for example, with the QAnon group, uh, when I, when I, I did a, a piece on QAnon, you know, at, v- at the very beginning when it was just starting and I was trying to figure out, okay, what are the motivations behind this group? You know, like, why are they doing what they're doing? Where is that coming from? And you know, I just, you know, you, you just dive in. Like there, there's a reason that, you know, people pay political operatives to infiltrate other groups. It's because when you understand another, the mindset uh, and the mechanics of the inner workings of an influence effort, you can start to see that play out. And that requires having conversations with people who think really differently than you. It requires having, you know, reaching out to and listening to, most importantly, people that you maybe don't feel like you want to listen to. But in doing so, you can start to kind of understand the mental models that are underlying their way of being, our way of thinking. And it helps, it really helps to increase the sphere of your understanding. Yes. And that's uh, get, getting outside the, the bubbles, which, you know, to whatever degree we, we tend to live in. So, so you, so having sort of been very early in perceiving some of the very active information warfare that uh, we, li- we live in today, what do you recommend to people in order to survive and to get through the flack of uh, the information warfare that is all around us? Well, you know, I I think it depends on what your goals are, right? So if your goal is I'm an average person and I just want to, you know, figure out what is going on in the world as best as possible, there are a couple of things you can do. I look for data sources, right? And then not just don't take those data sources at face value, but look into who's funding those data sources. Where is that, you know, where's the motivation for those data sources coming from? Look for, you know, as I mentioned, I kind of ignore most 
mainstream, <laughs> most mainstream headlines about like who said what or like that stuff is all garbage. Just look for information about, you know, I look at what governments are actually doing. I look at what businesses are actually doing. I read, you know, financial filings. That's a lot of the time, like in the U.S., the SEC requires financial filings from companies. And that's a very good way of seeing kind of, you know, what's really going on. You're not going to ever going to see anything, but you can start to understand a little bit more about what's happening behind the source. I love um, independent investigative outlets. I read The New Yorker a lot because I feel like they do a very good job of going beyond just headlines on individuals who are shaping public consciousness in interesting ways, in unexpected ways. I really appreciate the, you know, I look at The Economist and The Wall Street Journal for reporting on financials and what's really happening in financial markets. And I look for what they're missing when I read their content. You know, I look at what they're not saying in their articles, things that seem out of, you know, the standard operating behavior. You know, I, I follow a lot of, I politically I lean more liberal, but I follow a lot of conservative writers and thinkers and actors to try and understand, you know, what they're thinking, what what are they doing, what are their strategies, what are, you know, we're living in this bizarre world where we've never been more connected and we've never been more the subject of influence from advertisers and political forces. And so you kind of have to disconnect from your attachment to those things and take a step back and observe them with more of a learning and critical thinking approach, or else you'll just wind up you know, hating someone because that's what information warfare is pushing you to do. Yeah, which is being essentially having your own mind, I think is, is, is perhaps a, a summary of that. And, uh, and when people are trying to shape yours. So, so to round out, rather than, rather than asking you to recommend what people do, uh, you know, I think you epitomize the, this, you know, the, the stance of how it is you, you know, look for and uncover and pull together and take your own stance on understanding what's going on in the world. So what I'd like to ask is, what do you recommend to people to nurture that, to learn that, to develop a similar frame of mind or approach or, or mentality that you you have? Uh, the biggest and most important thing that you can do is to notice when you are consuming information that makes you feel strong emotions, right? So if you read something and you're like, I am really angry right now because I just read this new piece of information, think about that. Take a minute and say, why am I feeling angry? What, how, how is this framed? What, what part of me does this framing, does the framing of this piece of news or this article or this piece of content uh, adjust, or I, I guess like what part of you is it touching that makes you feel that anger? Why is that happening? What is the motivation behind that? And it, once you take that kind of step back, don't also then just like angrily engage with whoever posted that, you know, most people, I, I think many people interact with news through social, primarily through social media these days. And it's really, we've become accustomed to, we be, we've been trained really by social media platforms to think that we need to have an opinion on every piece of content. And that's how we, you know, that is the currency of social media is like, you're, who has a quippiest comment or the, you know, smartest, you know, retort or like calls out blah, blah, blah. Most, you know, 
who has the best roast of, you know, the politician or the movie star or whatever it is. But if you think, if you sit back and just like take a minute and, and sit with that, you don't really need to say anything back. It's okay. And that, that anger that you're feeling many, in many cases, you know, in some cases it's justified, but in many cases it's a manipulative tactic that is being deployed across social media platforms by bots, trolls, uh, people who pose as specific individuals in a specific group. You know, I see this a lot. I've seen this a lot most recently in the Black Lives Matter group. Like there are a lot of fake Black Lives Matter activists or fake, you know, any any hot button social issue has these kind of like fake posy accounts in there that are trying to stir things up. And so if you can avoid those and not jump into the anger feeling just because that I think would go a long way towards breaking that cycle of anger, reaction, anger, reaction. Don't become a cog in the outrage machine. I think that's fantastic as a sort of a single point in terms of being able to engage better. That's, uh, I think that that really hits the nail. So thanks so much for your uh, time and your insights, Barrett. There's obviously so much more I could uh, learn from you, but uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for being being the kind of person that asks these questions. It's a, it's an important conversation to be had. Yes, well, let's let's hope there's a sparking sparking some more people seeking to uh, thrive on overload as you do. <laughs> Have a great day. Thank you, Russ. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.